Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and take a class of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you're our, our loving Father, and we ask that you will send your spirit to enlighten us and draw us closer to you and make us more effective in sharing a message that can open the way for your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, so our lesson today is lesson two in the book of Revelation, and it's titled Among the Lampstands. And before we actually get into that content, I really wanted to pick up and finish um, in the middle of what we were doing at the end of lesson last week. And what we're doing at the end of lesson last week was asking the question, is there an overarching key to help us rightly interpret Bible imagery and Bible symbolism? Is there an overarching key? And I presented this idea out of a book called Christ Object Lessons. It says the following. The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Truths vast and profound are shouted forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are open to our understanding. Far more than we do, it is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. We are to comprehend the deep things of God. Angels desire to look into the truths that are revealed to the people uh, who, with contrite hearts, are searching the word of God and praying for greater lengths and breadths and depths and heights of the knowledge which he alone can give. As we near the close of this world's history, the prophecies related to the last days especially demand our study. The last book of the New Testament scriptures is full of truth that we need to understand. And of course, we're doing Revelation. So what do you think about this idea? That the gospel is the key to understanding the Bible mysteries. What do you think about that idea? That's the key. If you don't understand the gospel, then you won't understand the imagery of scripture. That's what this author is saying. So, what is the gospel? How would you describe the gospel? Good news. Good news, sure. That's the literal meaning of the word. But in the context of Scripture, then, good news about what? The good news about God. Well, this is another interesting quotation from the same book. It goes on to say this, No man can rightly present the law of God without the gospel, or the gospel without the law. The law is the gospel embodied, and the gospel is the law unfolded. The law is the root, the gospel is the fragrant blossom and fruit which it bears. Hmm. So does that mean that all the penal legal people who teach a legal law-based theology and gospel are actually right? That we have to have a legal system of investigation and judicial oversight and imperial punishments? Is, is, that, is, that, is that the good news? No. So then what's meant by this comment, the law and the gospel? The law and gospel is the gospel embodied and the gospel is the law unfolded. Or does this mean that when we correctly understand the gospel that we will correctly understand the law, all law, the design law upon which God built life, but also will correctly understand why a God of love who built reality to operate in the way it does, after his children broke with that reality and found themselves in a terminal condition, practicing practices that are destructive to their own life and their well-being, that he stepped in and gave new guidelines called laws that weren't yet in existence to help them, to diagnose them, to protect them. In other words, we understand the purpose of why the law was added if we understand God's character and how he designed life to work. But if we don't understand that, then we misunderstand everything else. This is, I found this this morning as I was doing some study. It's out of Bible Echo, um, April 16, 1894. It says, to, f- to fulfill the law in his own life, the Savior gave the children of men an example of perfect obedience. 
In his teachings, he made clear the distinct and distinct every precept of the divine law. He swept away the rubbish and erroneous traditions with which the Jews had encumbered it. He illustrated and enforced its principles and showed in all its particulars the length and breadth and height and depth of the righteousness required by the law of God. Pause. Why does the law of God require righteousness? Why does it require it? Why isn't it an option? Without righteousness, we would implode. We would self-destruct. We always do. So why does the law of respiration require you breathe? Why isn't it an option? I shouldn't have to breathe if I don't want to. Why is it a requirement that you breathe? It's not fair. It's not fair we have to breathe. It's how life is built to operate. And thus, as you're saying, life is built to operate on righteousness. Righteousness is a description of right, the right way things are built by God to operate. That's what righteousness means, the right way. Okay, And so that's why the law requires it, because that's the only way life exists. Outside of that, you decay and die. Continue with the quote. The Pharisees were dissatisfied with the teachings of Jesus. The practical godliness which he enjoined condemned them. They desired him to dwell upon the external observances of the ceremonial law and the customs and traditions of the fathers. But Jesus taught, that spirit, Jesus taught the spiritual nature of the law and made clear its far-reaching claims. Love to God and to men must live in the heart and control the life as the spring of every thought and every action. Now, pause there. Do you agree or disagree with that idea? That if you're going to be on God's team, if you're going to be reborn, if you're going to have be in a saving relationship with your Savior, that you have to have love in your heart for God and love for others. Do you agree or disagree? Okay. What kind of law can achieve this? Can you achieve that type of transformation by an enforced system of rules that threatens to punish you if you don't do the right thing? No. Get your mind around that. That's the corruption and infection in all of Christianity. This idea that God has a law and if you don't keep it, he's going to use power to punish you for it. And what does that do? It it crushes love and incites fear. And then it leads to theologies that we begin closing and hiding ourselves off from God and hiding ourselves off from each other. So we come to church with our masks on and we don't want anyone to see us. We don't talk about our struggles. We don't seek help and support and encouragement because people would reject us and we'd feel shame if we told them about our struggles. Why? Because we have a system of rules and we've all got to be good. But if you understand it as design law and we're spiritually sick, then it's like when you go to the hospital and the first thing you do when the doctor comes in and the nurses come in, the first thing you do is tell them your symptoms. I've been vomiting blood. I've got bad diarrhea. You tell them what's wrong so they can assist you in getting well. That's why the Bible talks about confess your sins one to another. But you, can't, you don't go somewhere where people practice, you know, some practicing witch doctor and tell that person your sickness because they're only going to do something that's going to make you worse. Continue on with the quote. There is perfect harmony between the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perfect harmony. The law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. The gospel is the good news of grace or favor by which man may be released from the condemnation of sin and enabled to render acceptance, acceptable obedience to the law. Pause. What does that sound like? What do you first hear? The, the gospel is the good news of grace or favor by which man may be released from condemnation of sin. 
Do you hear that as design law initially? Or do you hear that as that legal thing where God, through some payment made, now will extend grace and he'll release you from condemnation? How do you hear it? Is that the way you're conditioned to hear it? That shows the deep infection of the penal view, which is a lie. Let's read the whole sentence again and then unpack it. The gospel is the good news of grace or favor by which man may be released from the condemnation of sin and enabled to render acceptable obedience to the law. Now, think it through. How are we released from condemnation? By a legal payment or by actually healing, recreating, and fixing what's wrong with us? Does a legal payment enable a person to live in harmony with the law? No, No, it does not. Think that through. Legal payment doesn't enable, but this, somehow this gospel or good news of grace and favor not only releases us from condemnation, but enables us to live in harmony. So it has to be more than something legal. It can't be just that. Does it restore godliness within us that enables us, gives us new heart and right spirit, gives us a desire, gives us a, a new motives, writes the law in the heart and mind, Hebrews 8.10. So if godliness is restored within us and sinfulness is removed, then will the law condemn us? No. So notice why the, the gospel, through the gospel, we're released from condemnation. Why? Because we get a new heart and right spirit, we're recreated in the inner person, we are like Christ in character, no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, we're healed in the inner person. And so when the law looks at us, it doesn't find the defects there anymore. That's why we're not condemned. It's not penal legal at all. But when you teach the penal legal view, you cheat people. They don't even ask God for a new heart. They don't even look for healing and transformation. It's like, I got that stuff paid. I was saved when I was in boot camp. It's like, I don't have to worry about that anymore. I just go along knowing that all, all my sins, past, present, and future, were taken care of in there, and they're going to be erased out of the book because the blood of Jesus is going to be applied there. I like your analogy of the law, the Ten Commandment law, for example, is an MRI. Because it helps me to distinguish that I see as a nurse, I see the MRI as something that you go in and get tested. And it shows your faults, but it can't fix you. To be fixed, you have to go to the physician who then offers you an appropriate treatment that fixes you. And then it's up to you whether you take that or not and get healed. So with what you said, the very next words in the quote, the gospel points to the moral code as a rule of life. That law, by its demands for undeviating obedience, is continually pointing the sinner to the gospel for pardon and peace. Do you hear that as legal? Or do you hear that as this is how life is built to operate, and it points you to the gospel, to Christ, for healing and transformation, so you will no longer be out of harmony with how God built life to operate? Christ's triumph on page 150. It says, as a penitent sinner uh, contrite before God, discerns, yeah, as penitent sinners contrite before God, discern Christ's atonement in their behalf and accept this atonement as their only hope in this life and the future life. Their sins are pardoned. This is justification by faith. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. David was pardoned at, of his transgression because he humbled his heart before God in repentance and contrition of soul and believed that God's promise to forgive him would be fulfilled. Pause. Now, let's talk about that. Is this legal? What's actually happening? What's being described in this? A 
contrite heart. His heart was changed. So what happened first? Heart change or pardon and justification? And that's what justification is. Justification is taking what's, when you justify the margins on your document, what are you doing? Forgiving them? I forgive you for being out of heart. No, you're actually moving them. You're moving what's not lined up into what needs to be in line. Okay? And so justification, the human heart is naturally enmity with God. We don't trust him. We're selfish. We're out of harmony. We don't operate on his methods and principles. And so justification is when we've come to trust him Our heart is moved from distrust to trust. Our heart is now in a right connection with our Savior. And then when that trust, we open the heart and the indwelling spirit comes in and fixes all the damage. And so trust or repentance or that is setting the heart that's wrong right in right relationship with God again. And then healing and transformation comes. Several more quotes, but we're going to move on. Now, The only way any of this makes sense is with design law. How, when we surrender the heart, we allow the spirit to come in to lead us into better enlightenment, truth. We choose, oh, that makes sense. Do you understand when you make choices, you're changing pathways in your brain. You're changing your own character is being changed by the choices you make. You see, if you're out and you're checking out in the checkout line at the store and the lady has the cash register open and she gets distracted talking to somebody behind her and, and, and there's a temptation to take some money in the cash register, you have the choice to make. If you say yes and you take that money and you're not caught, you just changed your character toward that of a thief. If you go, no, I would never do something like that, you solidified your character in that of an honest person. Does that make sense to you? Your choices change you along the line. Not just choices of behavior, choices of belief in what you think is true. Well, take that example a step further. If you chose to steal money, and as you're reaching for it, she turns back around, and you draw your hand back, and you say, man, I really would have liked that 20. The damage is still done. That's right. So it's not behavioral. It's, it's in the heart. That's right. That's exactly right. Consider this quote. How would you describe God's law? Consider this quote. And this is the question. Remember, we're, we're talking about the law and the gospel. And we're trying to understand, how is the gospel the fruit? And the law is the root. How is that? Here's this quote. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide alike the star and the atom control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of life to the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has jurisdiction of the soul. From him, all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same. A life sustained by receiving the life of God, a life exercised in harmony with the creator's will. To transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe to introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. So the book called Education, page 99. What do you think of that? What kind of law is being described here? A system of rules. It has to be monitored by a, a judicial magistrate. And, uh, and you have to have arguments for and against in a court of law. And then some judge makes a decision whether you're guilty or innocent and then imposes punishment. Is that what you're hearing here? No, this is design law. And can you see what then happens if we replace God's design law with Satan's imperial imposed law? Then the gospel gets perverted and we take a false gospel to the world in the name of Jesus. And that's what's happened to Christianity. 
And that's why people can put crosses on their tunics and then put on their armor and go to the crusades and kill people. That's why people can take crosses and burn them in the yard of African Americans with white hoods over their head. That's why people can take crosses and then go and burn people at the stake or do the Inquisition. And they're all doing this in the name of Christ. That's why people who fled persecution for their beliefs to the America, once they got here, could then burn people at the stake as witches in the name of Christ. Because they have a false law. They think God's law works like human law does not. And I think this is the primary reason Christ has not returned. Because he's waiting, as he said, when the gospel of the kingdom goes to the whole world as a witness of all nations, then the end will come. And the gospel of the kingdom has not come. The wine of Babylon has gone to the world, misrepresenting God as an arbitrary, authoritarian dictator who is the source of inflicted punishment from whom we must be protected. And Jesus died to pay a penalty to him and is in heaven pleading his blood. And in certain religions, you don't only have Jesus, but you have Mary and all the saints pleading up there because he really has to be pled with. So why is this imposed law model? And remember, you know, one of the founders of the Adventist Church in the Book of Desire of Ages wrote, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared the law of God could not be obeyed. The justice was inconsistent with mercy and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Satan. This is Satan's view of God's law before earth was even created. This was the lie that got the angels in heaven. And think about what happens when, when, and why the law is the root of the gospel, and the gospel is the fruit. The law of God is the principle of love upon which life is built, and the gospel is the good news that God is love, and love is an outward movement of God toward the healing and saving of his creation. Thus we see manifest in Christ the character of God, the movement of love toward the fallen race, to bring truth about God back to our awareness while simultaneously taking our sick sin condition upon himself in order to cure and heal and provide remedy for us. The gospel is what love does, how love acts, the way love functions, which is the law of life in operation. That's the gospel. But Satan has worked to replace God's design law with imposed law and to get humans to misrepresent God as a being of stern justice who must inflict those punishments and then perverts the cross as something done to propitiate the wrath of the source of pain and suffering. I'm going to tell you, I think if we want to see Christ return, we've got to reject this whole imperial law thing, the penal substitutionary theology, which is an infection to Christianity. It's a, it's a shroud. It's like shackles that have shackled the Christian uh, church. We have to reject it and free ourselves, come back to design law and start telling this true message about God. All right, we'll go into our lesson for today. That was from last week. The title of the lesson this week is Among the Lampstands. And the second paragraph reads, Centuries later, an aged apostle found himself on the rocky prison island because of his faithful witness. In his distress, he got the news that the churches under his care were suffering. Yet at the critical moment, he was given a vision of the resurrected Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Here, as with the psalmist, the Lord revealed to John some mysteries of this life and the struggles it brings. The sanctuary scene provides him with the assurance of Christ's presence and care, an assurance that John was to pass on to these churches and to the succeeding generations of Christians throughout the centuries until the end of this world's history. The lesson points out that John was given a vision of the resurrected Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, and I found this description very interesting for several reasons. 
Why do you think the authors say that this vision was in the heavenly sanctuary, that Christ, they gave him a vision of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary? Why do you think they say that? Because he's among the lampstands. That's why they say that. Okay, all right, I, I see where they're getting that. But do you remember last week's lesson? Well, the lesson author said when we read Revelation, we should first read things there as symbolic, not as literal. Right? Is the sanctuary imagery then of these lampstands to be taken literally of a literal physical building or is it symbolic of something else? Hmm. Christ and the lampstands walking among them, are they literal pieces of gold with little combustible flames burning on them or are they symbolic? What do you think? Well, let's read Revelation one twenty. Here's Revelation one twenty. This is the secret meaning of the seven stars that you see in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And in Tuesday's lesson of this very lesson, it says the following. In Revelation, the lampstands represent the seven churches in Asia to which Revelation was originally sent and the lampstands also symbolize God's church throughout history. So... Should we take the lampstands as literal pieces of gold or as symbolic of the seven churches? Symbolic of the seven churches. And are the seven churches seven buildings made out of bricks and mortar or God's people? God's people. So if the lampstands are symbolic of the people of God and the image was that of Christ walking in the heavenly sanctuary, in other words, amongst the lampstands, would we say that he's actually walking among the churches? Interesting. Is that what you've typically been taught that means? This is the, I'm just telling you, I get so frustrated with some of the things we're taught. It keeps us in this mystical thinking instead of understanding reality. Why do you think, oh, and, 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 if, and if this heavenly sanctuary, the, the lamps represent the churches, we just read that from, from, the, from the scripture itself, which means the people of God through time, then what would it mean about Christ Cleansing the heavenly sanctuary. Interesting. So why do you think there's so much resistance in the Adventist church to accepting what Jesus revealed in Revelation about the heavenly sanctuary? That it's constructed out of his churches, his people, and he's cleansing his people. Do you know there's resistance to that? Because the church is infected with the false law lens, like all Christianity. And with the false law lens, they misrepresent the meaning of the, to be legal, penal, rather than healing and restorative. Without the design law, we can't understand the true gospel and we can't finish the work. Monday's lesson. Any questions about that? Have I peeked any? You don't have the wheels turning in your head? You don't have any, oh, wait a second, but what about stuff going on? Am I putting you all to sleep? They really want you to be thinking about this. You know, there's a prophecy in Daniel 8 about the cleansing of the sanctuary. What is being cleansed? Yes. So if we are the sanctuary and the lampstands represent churches, then we are the lampstands. Jesus said, who is the light of the world? Is the light in the world? We're supposed to be. That's right. And you remember the lampstand in the actual sanctuary before they became a, uh, a temple when it was actually a tent? There was one lampstand, one, not seven different ones, but on that one lampstand there were seven bowls with seven flames. 
the main pillar was solid gold, which represents Christ, who is the light that lightens all men. Six in Bible imagery, six is the number of man. Man was made on day six. Six is, uh, uh, you know, six, 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 number of the beastly system. Okay, six is number of humanity or man. There are six bowls connected to Christ, which makes seven. And so when we as human beings become connected to Christ, then we're perfected. Seven. This is the imagery of this of the system there. We'll come back to that in one of the other lessons about when we come back to the lampstands. It's very exciting stuff. So the Lord, um, Monday's lesson, it says the Lord's day, uh, talking about he had a vision on the Lord's day. What day in scripture is the day of the Lord or the day that's called the Lord's day in scripture? It's the seven day Sabbath. That's right. Um, in, and is the most important aspect of the Sabbath to realize which day in the seven day cycle it is or to realize its purpose, what it was created for. What, what's the most important aspect of the Sabbath? What happens if we define accurately which day of the week is the Sabbath day, but we misunderstand its significance and, and, and teach it through a, an imposed law lens? It's, a, it's just a rule made up by the sovereign to test your obedience. And we teach it that way. What would be the problem with that? It becomes a horrible day of don'ts. A horrible day of don'ts. A day of enslavement rather than a day of freedom. We have the right day, but we've been presenting the wrong meaning of the day. We present the wrong meaning of the day, we present the wrong God. And then when God comes and stands among us to teach us the truth, we hate him and we kill him and we want him off the cross so we can keep the wrong day of the week or the right day? The right day. But we're not on his team. It's not about which day. It's about what the days represent. What are they symbolized? That's what it's about. So sadly, the fourth commandment, has been translated by the translators through the lens of imposed law. When translators go to the Bible, they translate, but they have this presumption that God's law functions like human law, and thus they translate it. So remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You've heard that before somewhere. The key word in the verse is it, to keep it holy. And I've got the lexicon, the Hebrew lexicon here, but that same word can be translated as him, he, them, himself. So this allows a completely different interpretation. Remember the Sabbath day to keep yourself holy. Remember the Sabbath day in order to stay holy. Well, that, does that have the same meaning to you when you hear it that way? Or does it mean something new? Well, think about this with me. Let's walk it through. If we were to build a golden calf and have an orgy of pagan worship on the Sabbath... During the Sabbath hours, have we made the Sabbath less holy? If we were to have uh, spend the Sabbath hours in total righteous living, have we made the Sabbath more holy? Can we keep the Sabbath holy or make it less holy? No, we cannot keep it holy for we didn't make it holy. We can only keep ourselves holy. Now, can a person keep themselves holy only one day in seven? your mind around that so the sabbath was made for man jesus said the sabbath was made for man for what reason to remember remember, as an aid to humankind in holiness it was to aid you in your personal holiness that's its purpose and what is holiness then you have to wait what is holiness holiness 
It's a state of being holy. Okay, that's what it is. Holiness is a state of being holy. And I would like to suggest that means being in harmony with God in all aspects of our being. Thus, being holy is living in harmony with God's character, protocols, methods, his design laws. That's what holiness is. So it's how the Sabbath related to that. Well, when was the Sabbath created? Remember, the Sabbath was made for man. It was created. There was a time in universal history past it didn't exist. And that really goes and upsets a lot of people who want to think that the Ten Commandment law was always in existence as it is on those stones. It was not. It was added. It was added because of a human condition in a state of sin and needed that. See, angels in heaven didn't have a law to honor their mothers and fathers or that sins would pass down three and four generations. This was a complete codification of the principles of love for the need of a sinful human species. So... The Sabbath was, was made. When was it made? What was happening in the universe at that time? There was war. That's right. And what kind of war was this? Remember it says in Revelation, uh, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. What kind of war? Was it? Yes, that's right. The Greek word for war is polemos, where we get the word polemic. And what's a polemic? Not political. It's a little bit different, but they sound, they sound the same. Polemic is a war, a war of words, ideas, a war of concepts, of beliefs. Who are you going to trust? And that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. On the contrary, we have divine weapons that demolish strongholds, and we demolish arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. Notice this war over ideas and concepts center on our knowledge of God. That's the war. And that was happening because Lucifer began to suggest things about God that were not true, particularly that God makes up rules and he's the source of inflicted pain because his laws are not protocols for our well-being. They're simply things we have to abide by or else we're in trouble. God wants from his created intelligent beings, what does he want? He wants love. He wants our love. He wants our trust. He wants our loyalty. He wants our devotion. Can you get... Love, trust, loyalty, devotion by threatening to kill people who don't love and trust you. Do you see why Satan wants people to believe that God, in order to be just, must punish those who are not loyal to him? Because as soon as you believe that idea, it's part of the design law, it automatically breaks trust and makes you distrust him. It incites fear. So what does it say about God? Then in the context of an assault on his rulership, rather than using power to force his beings into line, instead he creates a day for free thinking. You see, day one through six of creation of this planet, what do we learn? That God is powerful. He's creating. That's power. That's nice. Glad we have an all-powerful God. It's important. But on day seven, we learn the character of the one who wields the power. And on day seven, he says, you've heard the allegations, you've seen the evidence we've given, I rest my case, and God steps back and stops using power and creates a space in time for free thinking. He presented truth in love, and you think about the planet Earth, that was was created by God. You understand the planet Earth is a microcosm of the entire universe. It's a microcosm of the entire universe. What do we have on planet Earth? We have a Godhead. Adam and Eve, the two shall become one, 
two separate beings that become one in unity with the triune God. We have a trinity of perfection, of love. And how do they govern? They were to come together in unity and give of themselves in love. And in the giving of themselves in love, they would bring forth new life in their image. Be fruitful and multiply before sin. God gave them that directive. So we have a, we have a Godhead uh, that operates on love as God designed it, who can create life in their image. We also have lesser life forms that are not on their level, but that could have interaction and relationship. And any of you have had a pet, you know you can have a love relationship with your pet. Your pet can love you and be sacrificial for you and you can have a, and, and love them, but they don't operate on your level. So when you have counsels with your spouse, the dog and the cat don't get invited into those discussions. We get understanding as to why Lucifer didn't get to go where Michael got to go, where Jesus got to go, because Jesus is an infinite being and Lucifer is a finite being. He can't enter those, the halls of infinity. There's tremendous lessons happening in this, in this planet. So God presents truth in love and creates a planet that operates with all the laws of love and operation. The whole planet screams, this is how, I, I, how life works. And he steps back and then says, take 24 hours. Consider for yourself. And now every week for the human was made for us, every week God created a piece of evidence built into time itself that every living human being on planet Earth passes through this day every week. Every week we pass through this day. You may not be aware of it, you may not think about it, but every week you transcend and pass through that time. Then what is, it, is the Sabbath commandment about? It is about how one lives their life in harmony with God and his design for life. Do we present truth in love and leave others free? Or do we use imperial rules and coerce others with threats of punishment? All week long, if you're a Sabbath keeper, you're to be thinking, all week long, remember the Sabbath day to keep ourselves holy. We are to be beings all week long. Let's present the truth in love and leave others free. Remember the Sabbath. This is how God works. Remember truth, love, freedom all week long. Practice those principles. These are the true Sabbath keepers. Those who crucified Christ had the right day of the week, but they did not have the principles of God in their character. They were not Sabbath keepers. With this in mind, we realize that God is creator and his laws are the protocols by which life is built to operate. And as creator of time, he built this piece of time. And you think about the significance of that. He builds and controls time. And so every week we pass through this day as a reminder, this piece of evidence, this opportunity for healing, growth, renewal, transformation, contemplation, freedom from the lies about God. But we can all experience that if the Sabbath is a piece of evidence of how God works and his design protocols and not an arbitrary test of obedience that he set up to test you by and punish you by if you break it. As soon as you go there, you're, 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 you're in another system. Just now, what about the, you know, in Adventism there's been this argument for 150 years, or not argument, this, this theological construct that the Sabbath is a sign and a seal of God, and Sunday is a mark of a beastly system. You guys know this has been put out and it's offended and, and obstructed the movement of the gospel to put it out in a certain way. How do we understand that? You understand the days or, or, or these two days of worship, these two days of rest, these two rest days, stand as banners or flags or marks or signs or pennants of two divergent systems of government. So it's not a test between which day you go to church on. That's false. It's a test on which government you align your heart with. 
That's what it's about. So you see this flag back here behind me? It's a flag of the United States. Anywhere in the world you go, if you wave that, everybody in the world knows what it represents. But that is not the United States of America. That's just a symbol of the United States of America. And somebody can wave that flag and not be supporting or on the team of the U.S. government. In fact, during World War II, German Nazi soldiers put on American uniforms with the American flag and infiltrated the lines to sow discord and disrupt what the army was trying to do. They wore the flag, but they were not on the team. Likewise, Sabbath and Sunday are two signs of different systems of government. The Sabbath is a day of rest by how? Creation. Thus, it's a sign of a system of government that operates on design law. Sunday became a day of rest by human legislation. Thus, it represents a system of imperialism. Imposed law. Rules that require infliction of punishment. But these days of worship with their origins establishing their significance are just like the U.S. flag, symbols, signs, and marks. They are not the governments they represent. So a person could be a Sabbath keeper on the seventh-day Sabbath, but practice the imposed law model and teach that the Sabbath is breaking God's, uh, you know, breaking the Sabbath breaks his imposed rules and requires God to inflict punishment. That person would be like the German soldier wearing the U.S. flag. That person would be infiltrating God's church, sowing discord and confusion, they would not be on God's team, but actually promoting the methods of the beast. And we have that all through the Adventist church. Conversely, a person who worships on Sunday but promotes truth in love while leaving others free is promoting the principles of the Sabbath, and they're on God's team. Okay, now you had a question. Comment. We got one to rub the law in our heart, knowing one day. That's what I told people. We need to be, unless we become Adventists of the seven days, we're not going to make it. And also when they sacrifice in Israel, Israel during the sacrificial, God said, I'm sick and tired about those sacrifices. I want a country to come. That's right. So Isaiah 1 is where it's some of those places it says, that, why are you bringing all these meaningless, worthless offerings to I mean, me? We had too many idols. 20 years ago, I threw the music away. Oh, I tell you, I'm talking with Jesus now. The idols, now we need to fight with the Facebook. Facebook destroy us. Pray for me. <laughs> Tuesday's lesson, second paragraph says, any, any other questions about what I just presented? Did it make sense? I've confused some. Tim, yeah. It makes such sense. It's like it's so simple, and we're making it so difficult for years and years of our Adventist history. And do you see how the, the church is hamstrung, hobbled? Do you know what hobbling is? When you hobble a horse, you tie ropes between the front and back legs so they, they can't gallop. Uh, our church is hobbled, hamstrung by this imperial law, this rules-oriented thing, this authoritarian overlord kind of construct. It hobbles us. We're impaired. We have a worldwide church. We have a presence in essentially every place of the whole world. But why isn't the world being lighted? Because we're teaching the same imperial authoritarian God with just a different system of rules. Well, you've got the wrong rules because you got Sunday. We got the right rules because we got Sabbath. You got the wrong rules because you know you you don't have a good diet. We got the vegetarian diet. You got the wrong rules because you you baptized by spring. We baptize by immersion. You got the wrong rules because you don't do foot washing and we do. I mean, it's just, it's just if you get the right rules, then then God won't have to punish you. And we're teaching the same authoritarian distortion just with a different system of rules. It's wrong. We are to be taking a message about our creator designer who has, through Christ, provided everything we need to be fixed, healed, restored, regenerated, recreated. 
That's the message. And all these other things are evidences or tools or resources for us. And so rightly understood, the Sabbath was made for you as a day that you can use all week long. Think about, oh yeah, remember the Sabbath. Remember how God created and rested. Remember he gives truth and evidence and leaves people free. I want to present truth of a loving God and leave him free. Amen. That's not how Christianity in America is wanting to function. Christianity in America is wanting to function by getting control of the Senate, getting control of the Congress, getting control of the Supreme Court, getting the right president so we can pass laws and make everybody abide the way we want them to abide. That's how our denomination wants to function. And that is not the kingdom of God. That is the beastly system. Look through the dark ages, exactly how that system functioned. The church controlled the state and punished people who didn't believe the way the church did. And at Revelation, we're in Revelation, it talks about how the whole world is intoxicated on the wine of Babylon. This is not literal grape juice. This is a system of thinking that comes in and confuses you. Wine confuses you. It makes you stuporous. You can't discern well. And so it's a metaphor for ideas that come in and make you stuporous and confused and you can't think clear anymore. That's imperialism. That's an imposed law contract. That's a God who says, I love you. I love you so much I sent my son for you. But if you don't love me, I will torture you in hell for all eternity. That's confusing. That doesn't make sense. Oh yeah, but it's justice. It's the right and just thing to do. You've got to punish people. Wait a second. Well, I, oh, you know, we just have to take that on faith. We can't ask questions. You know, God's ways are higher than mine. We turn our brain off. We become stuporous. This is what imperialism does. Do you think the Adventist church is free of this? There's all types of stuporous things taught in the Adventist church. Like, oh, I, you know, Lord won't burn you forever. He'll just burn you as long as you deserve you see, and, and, and if you understand the, the underlying principles be- between why many Christians have them burning forever, it's because they have the assumption or presumption that in Eden, God made humankind immortal at that time. There's some part of humankind that can never die. And now that they've rebelled and they won't be reconciled, well, God hates it. He, 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 he's, he's tormented in his own soul because he, his children are tormented. But what can he do for them? They're immortal. They, they don't want to be with him. So they're suffering for all eternity. But, but he doesn't prefer it that way. The Adventists, of course, teach we're mortal. We don't have immortality. And so God has to use his power to perform a miracle to torture them as long as they deserve before he kills them. That doesn't make sense. That's crazy talk. And so we have all these things that we teach because of the wrong law. We come up with wrong conclusions. Yes. I have friends who are not Adventists that watch this, and they have asked me, do you no longer love the Adventist church? Are you trying to start a new church? Okay, thank you for that. Appreciate that. Did Martin Luther not love his church when he posted his 95 Thesis on the wall? Was Martin Luther's goal to start a new church? No. Martin Luther's goal was to free his church from a bunch of things that were hurting the people. It was corrupting them. It was destroying them. They were living in fear. There's under these huge burdens. So no, I, I love the church, but I want to free the people and the church from these ideas that are so corrosive to their well-being and actually cheat them out of the, the restoration and love that God would have for them. So, no, I want to see reformation in my church and all Christian churches. I have some friends that are, uh, that are Adventist, and we've talked about the, what you're talking about now. And they say that, you know, God of love is only going to punish 
and burn the people for a short period of time. Maybe that's one advantage of being an Adventist, but they're not going to burn forever and ever and ever, which I don't understand. Right. Do, do the people in Sodom and Gomorrah get time off or time already burnt? <laughs> they get a discount? <laughs> I mean, you see, the, you see you, the silliness of this. It, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of God. It's seeing it through the imposed law. Imposed law requires rules. And, and I, if you understand where they're coming from, I understand why they teach that. See, if, if you take the air assumption, which is a lie, but if you assume God's law functions no different than human law, there is nothing actually wrong inherently with breaking God's law. If you do 36 in a 35 zone, nothing actually happens to you in, in reality. Some external force has to step in and inflict something upon you. That's how human law works. Right? God's law doesn't work that way. But if you assume it works that way, and then he set up a law and you break the law, but he doesn't enforce it. You've gone 36 into 35, but he doesn't do anything about it. Well, it's like not having a law. The law has no power. It's, it's like you just have anarchy. People can do whatever they want. And so in order to be just, then if he makes up a law, then he's got to enforce his law. That's how they think. They have a terrible misunderstanding of God's law. And it's very corrosive. Yes, hand in the back. Not only did Martin Luther love his, his church and his religion, but he also translated the Bible into German that the common people could also have the word. That's right. That's right. So anyway, so back to your... So then people have different amounts of sin they haven't confessed, and then under the imposed law view in Adventist, then it's not fair that Hitler gets punished the same as a, as a 20-year-old college student who just never accepted Jesus and didn't do really bad stuff, but, you know, did kind of a little lying and fibbing here and there, maybe smoked marijuana a couple times and cheated on an exam once, but they never asked Jesus for forgiveness. And uh, so it's not fair that they should have the same punishment as Adolf Hitler, so God will have to torture Adolf Hitler physically, causing him physical pain for many, many days to make that fair. You know, this is like uh, the devil saying, hey guys, there's nothing wrong with breaking God's law. Breaking God's law doesn't harm you. There's only something wrong with what God will do to you if you break his law. And if we could get him some anger management classes so he doesn't lash out against you, you could live eternally in sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's only something wrong with God. That's imperialism. Yes? Uh, you said earlier that uh, law is a root and love is a fruit. Right. Why not the opposite? I think love is a root, and law is a fruit. Well, when, the, the, the law that we're talking about is the law of love. Oh, okay. The law of love. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> okay. That is the law, the law of love that emanates from the character of God, and then the action or the good news that God acts in love, that is the gospel, the fruit. Yeah, so you're exactly right. Yes? In the end, when God cleanses the earth with fire and brimstone... Is everybody already dead before he does that? So again, it depends on what you understand the fire to be. Um, Isaiah. Well, I'm not the consuming fire, not like that. I'm talking about he does cleanse the earth with fire and brimstone. Revelation 14 is the fire in which the um, wicked experience torment. In Revelation 14, the fire and brimstone there. And, and the word translated fire and brimstone there is theon, which is a form of the word theos. And it actually means divine fire or the fire of God's presence, as in Daniel chapter 7 when the Ancient of Days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out before him. This is the fire of truth and love. It's not the fire of combustion. This is the fire that consumes sin. To, to sin wherever is found, our God is consuming fire. Revelation, tw- uh, excuse me, Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. So what you're saying is the people at the end are 
killed because they can't stand the presence of God. Sin can't exist in the presence of God. What I'm saying is when God unveils himself in full glory, he, the fires of truth and love penetrate everyone's heart and mind. Those who have been restored to godliness, they love it and they dwell forever in it. And we will radiate that fire of truth and love and we will be beacons of truth and love. Moses was getting a little bit of that coming off the mountain when his face was radiating. Um, um, Stephen's face just before stoning was radiating this way. So we're going to actually be beacons. This, this truth and love is somehow, it, it, it becomes physical light at some point that we can see it, but it's not combustion. Then what kills the people? Well, what does Revelation say? When they come in the presence of God, what do they actually say? What do they beg for happening there? The rocks and the mountains to fall on them. They don't want to live in his presence. And so the, the end of the wicked is voluntary with themselves. They don't want to live there. They surrender their life. Yes, they are suicidal. Judas gives an example of that. And, and, and it's suicidal because of the not, not because of God's infliction, but because in reality their condition is corrupt and corrosive and it's a painful and miserable way to live inside themselves. They don't want to live with themselves. That's because that's what sin does. Sin destroys. The righteous have had the sinfulness in them removed and they love living in truth and love. And then the fires of combustion do come and cleanse the earth. But yes. And in the, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, how many times did they burn an animal alive? <laughs> did they ever? No, not alive. Get your mind around that. The fires of combustion will only burn the corpses. It won't take their lives. So, in the lamps represent the church, and the high priest represents Jesus. Okay, the so. Let's read the second paragraph. It says uh, on Tuesday's lesson. It says, Moreover, the picture of Jesus as our high priest among the lampstands is drawn from the ritual practice of, in Jerusalem. The daily task of the appointed priest was to keep the lamps in the holy place burning brightly. He would trim and refill the lamps that were waning and replace the wicks on the lamps that had gone out, refill them with the fresh oil, and then relight them. In such a way, the priest became acquainted personally with the situation of each individual lamp. In the same way, Jesus is acquainted with the needs and circumstances of his people and intercedes for them personally. Where does Jesus intercede? Where? Get your mind. You are the lamp. You're a light to the world. And for those who cooperate, Jesus comes in and he trims, circumcises the heart, trims away the, the, the dross, the misunderstandings, the lies, the, the evil desires, the lusts, the passions that, that make us misrepresent him, uh, and fills us with truth and love so we burn more brightly for his kingdom. A lot of uh, practical application there. Hey, how many of you have ever lit a candle in the wicks too long? What happens? You have to trim the wicks. It makes a lot of smoke. Trim the wick, the light's actually brighter. So what happens if we instead believe that God is not interceding in our hearts? Christ is not, as our high priest, interceding in our hearts to trim the wicks of our hearts so that we burn more brightly. We instead believe that God is in heaven interceding with his Father to plead to his Father on our behalf so the Father won't kill us. What happens if that's our view? What happens to the message? What happens to the light we get? Are we giving light, or is our light now covered and hidden? Not only is it covered, but we try to become self-trimming lamps. And we try to... You ever see a candle try to trim its own wick? Mm. Well, we fear God. So... Right, and this is what the legal system does, the penal system. One of God's laws is the law of worship. By beholding, we are changed. When we accept the lies about God and view him in Satan's mold, we become more authoritarian, less compassionate, and more willing to use beastly methods of coercion. So, the high priest is interceding with whom? Us. 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 
Exactly right. So when we reject the imposed law lie and return to design law, God intercedes in three places in Scripture. He intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness, holding back evil forces. In Genesis 3, it says to the serpent, I will um, put enmity between you and the woman. So he's interceding in the hearts and minds of all of us to give us a conviction of wrong, to give us a desire for something better, a longing for heaven and healing. And he interceded in his person in the natural course of what sin does to the human being. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Without Christ, we are all on a terminal, a terminal trajectory. We're all going to die eternally. But Christ became human, became the second Adam, and he altered the outcome. He interceded with that path and made a new path for all who trust him. We can have eternal life now. He intercedes in three places. What about the oil? What's the oil represent? The Spirit. And where do we find the oil in the lamp? Yes, you notice that relationship there as well. Okay? What do you do with statements like this? Because those who prefer the imposed law may hit you with a statement like this, and I want you to be able to handle it. In the sacrificial offering, on every altar was seen a redeemer. With the cloud of incense arose from every contrite heart the prayer that God would accept their offering as showing faith in the coming Savior. Our Savior has come and shed his blood as a sacrifice, and now he pleads that blood before the Father in the sanctuary in heaven. It is now, as anciently, only through the merits of that blood that the transgressor of God's law can find pardon. You mean the pardon that he intercedes his blood to the Father? So, and now he pleads that blood before the Father in the sanctuary in heaven. It is now as anciently only through the merits of that blood that the transgressor of God's law can find pardon. This is a classic quote that people who love the penal view will hit you with. And, and how do you answer it? It's, it's, it's really fun to answer these. Ask him what direction he's facing. Oh, good. I like that. Okay. All right. I like that. And what are the merits? For, what are the merits? Okay. Always come back first to the question, what law? Always, always, always be thinking through design law. And be thinking we're sick and he's working to heal us. So then what could this mean in that way? It'll lead you down a path to bring in other uh, truths. Um, do we believe earlier about Jesus' words in Revelation that the lampstands represent the churches. Then the sanctuary that he is pleading his blood in is the people. Oh, wait a minute. Now that's a, he's, it, it, Our Savior has come and shed his blood as a sacrifice, and now he pleads his blood before the Father in the sanctuary. Would you say, he pleads his blood before the Father in the churches? Oh, does that give you a new shift of idea? Like Russell was saying, we're, turning, we're not having him facing the Father, we're having him facing the people. Hmm. Do you think that this quote that I uh, read to you will contradict Jesus himself? Because Jesus said in John 16, 26, 27, in that day you ask in my name, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you. So Jesus says he's not going to actually plead to the Father for us. Notice the language. This author didn't say he was pleading to the Father. He was pleading before the Father. In other words, under the purview of the Father. And along with the Father. Does Jesus need to plead with the Father? Does the Father need some convincing? Jesus said, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare us some, but gave him up. How are we not along with him? Give us all things. So who needs to be convinced? 
So Jesus said in John 16, I have much to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now notice this. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit now. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. What's being described here? The Holy Spirit for us, too. To whom is the Holy Spirit listening? He's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak what he hears. So the Holy Spirit is listening to hear something that he'll communicate to us. Who's he listening to? Jesus. He will take what is the Father's and make it known, or take what is mine and make it known to you. Who's he listening to? Who's in heaven pleading? Jesus is the one pleading, not the Father. And the Holy Spirit's listening to the pleas of Christ. And the Holy Spirit's taking the pleas of Christ and communicating to your heart and my heart. Because Christ is among the lampstands. And the lampstands are filled with oil, which is the Holy Spirit. And Christ is working to make your lamp burn bright. So who do you think he's pleading to? Because we totally misunderstood God. And he came, part of the reason he came was to help us understand what God is really like. Not what we thought he was like, but what he was really like. So in Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who, who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It is, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. And he said, put a clean turban on his head, and so forth. Now, notice in this description in Zechariah, Satan accuses. Satan's accusing. To whom is Satan making his accusations? Who is he speaking to, to accuse? D- does, does God listen? And this is the classic legal view. Satan is your accuser, and Jesus is your defender, and God is the judge, and God is listening to all the accusations. Is this what's happening in heaven, that God gets confused by Satan's arguments and needs Jesus to present the truth? And and God looks to his son and says, Wow, son, thank you so much. I almost believe what the devil is saying. If you hadn't been there to present the truth, I wouldn't have known it. (laughs) Do you see the cruddy picture of God we get when we present this legal thing? Do you think God needs Jesus to plead to him so he knows the truth? No. No. Do you think he gets confused by the devil's arguments? No. No. Who does get confused by the devil's arguments? <laughs> Who listens to the devil and gets discouraged, guilt-ridden, overcome with shame, such that they think they're beyond salvation, beyond healing, too sinful, too awful for God to love and for God to save? We do. We are the ones with whom Satan makes the allegations. Then to whom is Christ pleading his power, his blood, his love, his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his gospel? Who is he pleading to? I'll read you this last quote and we'll close on this. This is out of um, Testimonies, Volume 5, 470. Through the plan of salvation, Jesus is breaking Satan's hold upon the human family and rescuing souls from his power. All the hatred and malignity of the arch-rebel is stirred as he beholds the evidence of Christ's supremacy. And with fiendish power and cunning, he works to wrest from him the remnant of the children of men who have accepted his salvation. He leads men into skepticism, causing them to lose confidence in God and separate from his love. He tempts them to break his law, and then he claims them as his captives and contests the right of Christ to take them from him. 
He knows that those who seek God earnestly for pardon and grace will obtain it. Therefore, he presents their sins before them to discourage them. He is constantly seeking occasion against those who are trying to obey God. Even their best and most acceptable service he seeks to make appear corrupt. By countless devices, the most subtle and the most cruel, he endeavors to secure their condemnation. To secure their condemnation by whom? Who does he want to get you condemned by? By yourself. That's who he's seeking, that you're too awful, too sinful, you've gone over the line, you're so corrupt that you're no good, God can't do anything with you. Man cannot, notice, and notice the next words, man cannot meet these charges. That's who he's making it. We can't meet it. We, he, 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 we, in his sin-stained garments, confessing his guilt, he stands before God. But Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea in behalf of all who, by repentance and faith, have committed the keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause to vanquish their accuser by the mighty arguments of Calvary. I'm going to pause. To who do you think he's pleading? The mighty arguments of Calvary. Who needs to believe the truth of God's goodness, God's love, God's grace, God's power? Does, does God get confused by Satan's argument and need to know that Christ is really good and on our side? No, we do. His perfect obedience, Christ's perfect obedience to God's law, even unto death of the cross, has given him all power in heaven and earth, and he claims of his Father mercy and reconciliation for guilty man. Now notice who Christ speaks. Notice. To the accuser of his people, he declares, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. These are the purchase of my blood, brands plucked from the burning of fire. Those who rely upon him in faith receive the comforting assurance, quote, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from you. I will clothe you with a change of raiment. Who's he speaking to? We are the ones that he's pleading with. We cannot answer the charges of, of Satan against us. Christ alone can make an effectual plea on our behalf. He is able to silence the accuser with arguments founded not upon our merits, but upon his own. Isn't that exciting? So I'm going to tell you, who to whom are you listening? Are you listening to the liar? Yes, Linda. John the Baptist in Luke uh, 1, John the Baptist's father, once he could speak again, prophesied about the role of Jesus. And there are several things that his role was to remember his covenant, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, but most importantly, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all, uh, before him all our days. Yes. Is he talking to us if we're already serving him? I don't think so. So he is talking to us and pleading to us if we're actually serving the devil. So it sounds to me he's pleading to all of us all the time, comforting us, encouraging us. The point to plead to us if we're already his. Well, What's he, the point? Because we are still being tempted and discouraged and attacked by a roaring lion seeking to do my doubt. us being yes. his property, so to speak, yes. his servants. To keep us from being tripped up by, by the confused lies. Yeah. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a creator God of love who built all reality to operate in harmony with your own nature and character of love. We ask that your Holy Spirit will come and lighten our minds. Let us hear Christ, please, in our own hearts and minds. Transform us to be like you and make us effective in taking this message to the world so you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.